0: amen. Thank you so much for leading us in worship. That was awesome. You know, there's ever since I've come to faith, I can say that music moves me like nothing else can. Um, I think that's why God, when he gives us the longest book of the Bible, he makes it the Psalms, songs that we sing. He knows that we're beings that are moved by music and that's that's awesome. I need more of that. Well, My name is, is Sam Kasten-Smith, and I'm an assistant pastor here on staff, and I'm headmaster of Bethany Christian School uh, across the street. And it's a, a privilege to be able to come and preach to you today a message from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And in chapter 15, Paul, after 14 chapters of addressing everything that he's brought to the Corinthians is going to turn and focus on the core of what we believe, the core of our faith. And if we get this wrong, nothing else matters, and that's the resurrection. The resurrection of Christ, our resurrection, our hope of resurrection. And here's the deal. If you go back and you look at the writings of the apostles, they are absolutely laser-focused and their preaching and their hope and their discussions on the resurrection of christ you go to the modern america church you go around you take a sampling of sermons and we don't talk about the resurrection that much nowhere near as much as we talk about the cross and the amazing unparalleled example of love that christ demonstrated in choosing the cross for us but here's the deal The cross has meaning. The cross is flooded with its power because of the resurrection. The resurrection was the amen of all of God's promises. It was validation that Jesus was God, that He conquered sin, that He conquered death, not only for Himself, but for us as well. The resurrection was proof That God had power to drive the forces of death and darkness out of our lives. The resurrection is the core of Christianity's power. And so Paul turns to it today, and there's two things I want to leave you with today the resurrection happened, and the resurrection matters. So he starts in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2, and he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. So he's saying, when I came to you... Now Paul writes 1 Corinthians in 55 AD. He had visited them for 18 months, three and a half years earlier. And he's saying, let me remind you of what I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And what Paul is saying right here is what I'm about to tell you, this really, really simple thing that I preached to you determines your everything. All the promises, all the discussions of the previous 14 chapters hinge on whether you believe this that I'm about to share with you. So, the discussion about love, the discussion about spiritual gifts, the discussion about unity, all of those discussions only matter, really, if you walk through the gate of what I'm about to remind you of. And Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance, first importance, what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And so what Paul is getting at, he's repeating what he received. Jesus died in 30 AD, was resurrected in 30 AD, a couple of years go by, Paul is then converted And three years later, he goes to Jerusalem, he interviews Cephas and James, and he's like, okay, what is the gospel? And it's boiled down to this statement. Faith, trust, wholehearted reliance on the fact that Jesus Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he conquered death and sin being raised from the dead according to the scriptures. Paul says, that's it. First importance, if you don't get that right in your heart and in your faith, none of the other stuff we've talked about matters. That is of first importance. And this creed that he summarizes with the Christian faith existed within the first two years of Christ's resurrection and had been circulated throughout the world And as soon as he gives us this creed, he then goes on and he says, and he appeared to Cephas, who is Peter, and then to the 12. He's trying to comfort you saying, this wasn't just made up whole cloth. Lots of people saw this. And he goes on and he says, and this should be a real comfort. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Now note that this is not, total people it's like when Jesus does the miracle of feeding the 5,000 it's 5,000 men add the women and children and we might be talking about a miracle that feeds more than 10,000 and so here Paul is saying he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time who are still alive why does he say that most of whom are still alive why does he say that? Because you can go ask them. Some have fallen asleep. Some are dead, but you can go ask them. They may still be alive. Let me ask you a question. This is a politically incorrect question. Brace yourself. <laughs> Raise your hand if you are older than thirty years old. Keep your hands up. This is going to make it uncomfortable for you. <laughs> now. Keep your hands up. If you're older than 30, now also keep your hands up if you remember firsthand when it happened the Challenger disaster. Keep your hands up. Keep your hands up if you saw live the Challenger disaster either with your eyes or on TV. Now keep your hands up if you saw it explode in the sky with your own eyes. All right, so we're getting to it. Now, the reason why I bring this up, does that feel like yesterday to you? I mean, I still, I remember, I was a kid, I was out on the playground of my school, I think I was eight or nine or something, and I remember looking at this thing up in the sky, I was in Vero, closer to Cape Canaveral, and watching this thing, and all of a sudden it does one of these, and the smoke trails go in different directions, and our teachers are like, oh, it's okay, it's okay, let's go into the lunchroom, and they escort us away. The generational memory from when Paul writes his letter to 1 Corinthians in 55 AD is five years shorter than the distance from now to the challenger. And so when I say, are there witnesses here? And the hands go up and I say, well, you saw it on TV, so you heard it secondhand, or however you want to say that. Was there anyone in here who saw it with your own eyes? And five or six or seven hands remained up, and here's what I want to say: You don't believe in the Challenger disaster? Go ask them. They saw it. They remember generational memory. I mean, this is 30 years. The, the resurrections, 25 for Paul, and he's saying, "Go ask them." It's not like the high school guy who says, "I'm dating a supermodel," but you don't know where she goes to a different school. These witnesses have gone out into the world. They're not all over in Judea, as we'll see in a minute. These witnesses are scattered throughout the world. And then Paul adds, and then he appeared to James, the half-brother of Jesus, and then to all the apostles. And here's another thing with the resurrection and and thinking through, did this happen? That's really interesting because James, if you go back to Mark 3, when Jesus' ministry is first starting, Jesus comes out onto the scene. He starts doing and claiming all these things. And the crowds go to his family and James, his half-brother, and they say, what, what's your brother up to? And you know what James's response was at the time? He's crazy. He's out of his mind. I don't know what he's up to. I want nothing to do with him. Do not let him shame our family. He is not one of us. He's out of his mind. He's beside himself. So he goes from that, being ashamed of his brother, he would have been right alongside the Sanhedrin saying, yep, blasphemer. And then all of a sudden, something happens. Paul tells us that James saw the resurrected Christ. And you know what becomes of James? He becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem, the first bishop of the church of Jerusalem, and is so absolutely all in for the resurrection and the gospel of Jesus Christ that he's martyred, thrown down from the temple, beaten to death with Fuller's clubs. What did he see? What changed him from going, he's crazy, to I'll give it everything I have for him? He saw the risen Lord. Last of all, Paul says, by the way, there's one more witness coming. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. I used to be the guy that would go around and hunt down the Christians. I was. Born in Tarsus to wealthy family. I had Roman citizenship. I was trained by the top expert rabbi Gamaliel. I had all privilege. I was climbing the ranks among the Pharisee. Probably had a seat on the Sanhedrin just waiting for me. Except one little thing happened. I was on the way to Damascus, on the road to Damascus, and suddenly I was going to arrest Christians and, and probably put them to death or imprison them. And then suddenly... Christ in his glory, blinding light, appeared to me and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he called me to become the apostle to the Gentiles, to go to the Roman world and tell people that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. I'd gone from a persecutor to probably next to Christ, the most influential person in the spread of the church And he says, I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. We're going to pick up on Paul in a minute, but I want to stop. And I want to talk to you really, really briefly about the major explanations that people give for the resurrection. And by the way, in scholarly circles, the resurrection is getting more and more respect. A lot of the positions that were, were kooky, were, that were accepted in the 70s, people are starting to abandon. So I want to look at just five of them, some of the most common and walk through them. And these are in, in order of least reliable to most reliable. Jesus faked his own death. So a while ago, a lot of people said that Jesus was on the cross, that he endured all this stuff, but just before he was going to die, he faked it. The swoon theory. So he's got all these injuries. He's been, he's been whipped and slashed and beaten and even speared. And Jesus goes... and swoons and fakes his death, and they take him down off the cross. They put him into a tomb. They seal it with a 4,000-pound stone. And then in the middle of the night, after a few days of sitting in there with those wounds and all the blood and bleeding and everything else, Jesus musters up the courage to move a 4,000-pound stone and escape. It's a ridiculous theory. The Romans knew how to kill people. They didn't mess that up often. They were good at it. The next one is, that the women on resurrection morning went to the wrong tomb. I mean, just think through that and you can see how absurd that is. I mean, the gospel's tell us what tomb he was in he was in joseph of arimathea's tomb he asked Pilate for permission so Pilate knew and so if the women went to the wrong tomb and it was wide open and there was nothing in there and they went away shouting hooray 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 the roman soldiers would have walked up and said no no, no check the one next door up oh, there he is take his body parade it through jerusalem put an end to christianity they certainly w- might have checked other tombs if they weren't sure then you have disciples stole the corpse. This is where the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin go. This one is popular. We'll get to that in a minute. The next one is the most popular among skeptics. And this is what it is. It's the mythological Jesus. It's, yeah, or Jesus may have lived, but he didn't do all this miraculous stuff. He, he wasn't raised for the, from the dead. What happened was the church wrote all these gospels and all these letters and made up history about Jesus. And even though they wrote it in like 70 AD, they picked up all of those stories and said, okay, that's the history of the last 40 years. And that's what it's called, the the myth. They made it up and then everybody later went, oh, that must be history. We can trust that. Just as absurd. We'll see in a minute. And then the last one is the resurrection actually happened. There's other ones that are absurd, like mass hallucination, or that Jesus appeared as a ghost. But let's focus on those. How about the disciples stole the body of Jesus? Now, if you are like me, every picture, you know, Golgotha and Joseph's tomb are right on top of one another almost. So it's in the same hill. In fact, if you go to Jerusalem, if you go to the church of the Holy Sepulchre, in one church, is the spot where Calvary was, Golgotha, where Jesus was crucified, and the tomb. They're right on top of one another, right next to each other in Jerusalem. And so the way that I've always pictured the crucifixion, thanks to all the the creative artists out there who've done this for me, is that it's on some beautiful mountain, out in the middle of nowhere. There's a sunset behind it, but there's no buildings, there's no roads, there's no walls or cities. And that's just not the case. So This is the way you should think of the crucifixion. Here's a map of first century Jerusalem. And what you'll notice, the red lines are the walls that existed when Jesus was crucified and when he died. And that black circle and the blue box is where Golgotha and Jesus' tomb are. And what you'll notice, if you look down at the scale at the bottom left, this is measured in yards, okay? Jesus was crucified... 50 yards away from a major road. He's crucified 100 yards away from a fortified wall where Roman soldiers would have been stationed. He's crucified 150 yards away from the major tower where they were posted to look for invaders. He's crucified, sandwiched between, to the south, you'll see the praetorium, Which is where he was convicted, Pilate gave him up and all the Roman soldiers gathered. And then to the northeast, the Antonia Fortress. So in all of Jerusalem, the two places where the soldiers are most densely populated, that's where Jesus is crucified. The distance between the the Praetorium and Golgotha and Golgotha and Antonia Fortress is like from here to Fred Hunters. And so what you have to believe to believe that the disciples stole the body, cue the music, dun, 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 dun. They're coming into the feast of, feast of Passover, one of the three acquired feasts, the largest feast in Israel. Jerusalem's population swelled, and, and Jesus's writings, we know where did Jesus camp out a lot and the crowds that were on the hills because Jerusalem overflowed. Along the roads, there were tents where people stayed. And so if Jesus is crucified on a major road right outside of a wall next to where the mountains start emerging where people are camping, in the middle of the night, these disciples are going, oh, excuse me, pardon me, crowds, pardon me, excuse me, to get to the tomb where they then use a lever to move a 4,000-pound stone. No crowds witness the stealing of a body the guards on the walls don't see it the soldiers stationed at the tomb don't see it it doesn't pass the smell test it's absurd to think they could get away with that and nobody can say with sure there's no witnesses who come forward and go they did it they did it that would have squashed christianity and the womb but you look at paul's response To the risen Christ. When you think of the mythic view that all this was created, I want you to start getting an idea of what's going on in the early church. You ready? So, Paul leaves this life of privilege, wealth, Roman citizenship, best career path going straight up. He leaves all of that privilege because he's seen the risen Jesus. And he begins to take the message of the risen Jesus to city after city after city after city. And I want you to think about what Paul endured for that. In Damascus, the first place he goes, the Jews plotted to kill him. These are quotes from Acts. The Jews plotted to kill him. And Paul said, Oh, that's enough. I've had him. No, he goes to Jerusalem where they sought to kill him. Then he goes to the city in Antioch where they attacked him and drove him out of the city. Then he goes to Iconium, where they tried to capture him in order to stone him, but he escapes from the city. Then he goes to Lystra, where they actually do stone him to the point where he is lifeless, laying on the ground. They assume he's dead. They drag him out of the city. And Paul gets up and says, you know, this resurrection business, it's not worth it. I'm done. No. Battered, beat up. Paul gets up at Lystra and goes to Philippi where he's beaten with rods and imprisoned. That's not enough. He gets up, he goes to Thessalonica where a violent mob drives him out of the city and he runs down to Berea where they chase him and drive him out of that city too. And then he goes into Athens where he's ridiculed and they mock the resurrection. And then he goes down to Corinth where they're so hostile to him that he can't even preach in the synagogues anymore and has to go get his own private place. And then he goes to Ephesus, where after three years of ministering to them and pointing to the resurrection, they drive him out of the city in mobs. And if that's not enough, at the end of his third missionary journey where he's in Ephesus, he says, I'm going home. And everyone says, No, 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 no. You don't want to do that. Do you know what's waiting for you in Jerusalem? Do you know how angry the Jews are with you that you're teaching resurrection? No, do not go. That will be a bad idea, Paul. Paul says, I'm going. I'm going to testify about the resurrection, that this is true. He goes to Jerusalem, and sure enough, they're so angry with him that the tribunal, who's about to set up a trial before Governor Felix, says this, Get ready, 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. So count them up. That's 470 troops to guard Paul on his trip from Jerusalem to Caesarea to see Felix. You think the Jews were upset with him about this resurrection business? 470 to guard one. He had turned the world upside down. And when Paul goes and stands before Felix, he says this. When Felix says, what in the world have you done? It's with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. This word of the resurrection had gone out, but here's the deal. Here's what I love. The mythical response tells us that in 70 AD, let's say the first gospel written, Mark, which scholars, most of them put it at 65 AD. If it's all created by the apostles, I want you to think about this. If it's all created by the apostles, the history, right? then we should see no evidence of resurrection before the Gospels are written, before the apostles invented it, right? You follow me? Well, let's look at the world's response to the risen Christ before the first Gospel is written. And I hope this encourages your faith. It certainly does mine. Luke, when we get to the book of Acts, Luke writes to us what's going on at Pentecost. Pentecost happens 50 days after Passover. So he's writing less than 50 days away from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just a little bit more than a week before that, Jesus has ascended into heaven. Now the apostles are left alone and Peter kind of takes the mantle. And he goes before these huge crowds at Pentecost, which is another one of the required feasts where there were thousands and thousands and thousands of people in Jerusalem And he gives a sermon, and Luke tells us, this is who was there. This is important. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And then he goes on and lists a bunch of places that we don't know where they are. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. Now, those they don't have the same names, but we know where they are. And when you look at a map of these places, you'll see why that's important. He goes on and Peter begins to preach. And in it, Peter's sermon... He's talking nonstop about the resurrection, nonstop about the resurrection, the power of the resurrection. And then he gets to this point where he says, David, the prophet David talked about how the Messiah was going to be risen from the dead. And he says this, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he would not be abandoned to Hades, that his flesh would not rot and seek corruption. And then looking to a crowd of thousands of people, He says, this Jesus God raised up. And of that, thousands of people, we are all witnesses. You people have been in Jerusalem. You saw this. Some of you have stayed since Passover. You saw the risen Jesus with your own eyes. And if he's preaching this message as a total lunatic who's just making stuff up, you expect the crowd to go, whatever. Whatever. But 3,000 of them are baptized. And when you look at where they go back home to, these witnesses of the resurrection, it looks like an explosion out of Jerusalem. This is the map. And these are all those different places. And I think Luke lists them out so that we understand that the word of the resurrection immediately after the resurrection, all over the world, to all these places in every direction. Well, (laughs) let me ask you a question. If you walked outside of your office building or your place of work and you saw this, what would your response be? I mean, you didn't see anything. You don't know that something actually happened. But you walk outside and you see people running with reckless abandon, stumbling over one another. They're, they're doing anything they can to go in that direction. What are you naturally going to conclude? They're exercising. <laughs> no, of course not you're going to conclude something happened. And something happened of such a magnitude that it's causing people to run with reckless abandon and you're not going to say, I'm going to go check it out. You're going to get in the crowd and you're going to run with them. This is the force of the witnesses of the resurrection going out into the world who go with reckless abandon to their deaths for what they saw. When we make the argument that people don't die for a lie, it's not just the 11 apostles who run off and are martyred or burned with oil or crucified upside down or hanged with trees rather than deny the resurrection. We're talking hundreds of these cases, thousands. If you look at Luke, people don't run off and die for a lie. I mean, even 11 is impossible. Thousands? Thousands? And so you get into the records of what's happening before the Gospels, before the apostles have invented Christianity. Let's look at the records of what's happening. When Paul's writing his letters to all these places, this is what he's saying about all these places before the Gospels are written. He says to the Colossians that all over the world the Gospel is bearing fruit and growing. To the Romans, he says, your faith is being reported all over the world. To the Thessalonians, he says that their faith in God is going forth everywhere. And when Paul's enemies are lamenting about the Gospel, they say it's turning the world upside down. You look at Josephus, and he's writing in his book, Jewish Antiquities, about Pontius Pilate, who reigns from 26 to 36. So that's the purview of what Josephus is writing about here. And listen to what he says. At this time, from 26 to 36, there was a wise man who was called Jesus, and many people from among the Jews, hear this, and other nations, just like Luke says in the book of Acts, became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die, but his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. What did they do? They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. So these apostles and disciples and all of these people from foreign nations who become his disciples go out and what do they teach? We saw him three days after his death. Or when we get into the book also in the book of Acts, when Paul first goes to Corinth, this is 50 AD, when he steps foot into the city, he meets this power couple, Aquila and Priscilla. The reason why they're in Corinth is because they had been expelled out of the city of Rome. Now, this has to be prior to 50 AD, so well before the Gospels are written. And in the book of Acts, chapter 18, it says they were in Corinth because Claudius, Emperor Claudius had expelled all the Jews out of Rome, which begs the question, why in the world did Emperor Claudius expel the Jews out of Rome? And from Suetonius, we learn this, since the Jews of Rome, by the way, ancient historian, right? Back in the day, since the Jews of Rome were indulging in constant riots, the kind of riots that Paul faced, right? Right? He is not our Messiah. Drive him out. Drive him out. Since they were indulging in constant riots at the instigation of Christ, he expelled them from the city. How in the world has the news of the resurrection and the Christ reached Rome if it hasn't been invented yet? And he does more. Emperor Claudius reigns from 41 to 54 AD. So this is like... A hop, skip, and a jump away from the resurrection. And he's sending edicts to places like Alexandria where he says, Stop letting the Palestinian Jews come into Alexandria because they are fomenting a general general plague that infests the whole world. These are the words of Claudius. But I challenge you, go read Acts 24 and listen to the language the Romans use against Paul. It's the same. You are a plague infesting the world. There'd been a theme developed by this point. Why is he so worried about Palestinian Jews coming into Alexandria and Africa? Because they're bringing the gospel and it's creating problems. Or why would Claudius, 41 to 54 AD, send this inscription to the city of Nazareth, which we have discovered, which I love, because this one is amazing. There's no other explanation for it, but this is what this inscription says. It's the edict of Caesar. If anyone has in any manner extracted those who have been buried... Or has moved with wicked intent those who have been buried to other places, committing a crime against them, or has moved sepulchre stu- stealing stones against such a person. I want that violator to suffer capital punishment. Why in the world does the emperor of the largest empire the world had ever known bother himself with a podunk city of Nazareth? Unless something out of Nazareth had turned the world upside down. It would be like President Obama issuing an executive order to stop graffiti in Guam. Like it makes no sense. And here's the other thing. If you're going to address grave robbing, you would think that the order would read something like, hey, I do not want you to tolerate people breaking into tombs and stealing gold and family heirlooms and really precious stuff. Like, when is there this problem of people stealing bodies out of tombs? Are they valuable? Like they didn't have medical research back then, so like why do you want a dead body? But in Claudius's mind, a hop, skipping, a jump away from the resurrection, he is trying to stamp something out. And why Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth? Why Galilee? Because that's where the disciples are from. So we get to the next emperor. Nero and the fire of Rome in 64 AD. Still before, most of the Gospels have been written. And when the fire happens, what does Nero do? Who does he blame it on? Christians. Well, how in the world could Christians be in Rome if the Gospel hadn't been invented yet? The Gospels hadn't been circulated yet. Paul only went to Rome in 61. He's been in prison to 63. And after that, he left to go to Spain, most people think. So where's this gospel happening? And it's not just on a small scale. It's like beginning to take over Rome to such a scale that Nero looks at Christianity and goes, we got to stomp that out. And so if you look at the historians why this happened, Suetonius says, punishment by Nero was inflicted on the Christians, a class of men given to this new and mischievous superstition. What is this superstition? What's the resurrection from the dead? It's what made Christians unique at that time. In fact, if you read Lucian, who's a Roman playwright, he says this the Christian worship the Christians worship a man to this day. So in other words, he's alive to be worshipped, the distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account. He's verifying everything the Gospels are teaching. These misguided creatures start with the general conviction that they are immortal for all time. What does Paul say? First importance. These misguided creatures start with the conviction that they are immortal for all time. That the resurrection is true. That death has been defeated. Then you look at this one. I threw this in just because it's... hilarious. Celsus, who's a skeptic of, among the Romans, tries to explain how Jesus does all this stuff. And so he says, Jesus, on account of his poverty, was hired out to go to Egypt when he was a young man. And while there he acquired certain powers, he returned home highly elated at possessing these powers and on the strength of them gave himself out to be a god. It was by means of sorcery that he was able to accomplish the wonders which he performed. But let us believe that these cures... Or the resurrection which he doesn't deny is circulating or the feeding of a multitude with a few loaves are nothing more than the tricks of jugglers wouldn't you like to see those jugglers like raising people from the dead feeding 5,000 people with a few loaves are nothing more than the tricks of jugglers can't explain it away then you get to tacitus who's a roman historian who's a roman senator who's got access to all the records of rome and he could easily say oh that never happened but what does he say about the fires to get rid of the report nero fastened the guilt and inflicted a most the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called christians by the populace christus in the Latin, whose name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty, crucifixion, during the reign of Tiberius, check, at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, check, and a most mischievous superstition, the resurrection, there it is again, thus checked for the moment, again broke out, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world, find their center and become popular. And then he goes on and adds this, which is interesting. He says, accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty, and then upon their information, an immense multitude. Not, he doesn't just say a multitude. An immense multitude. In 64 AD, before the Gospels are circulating, they're everywhere in Rome, were convicted. A mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. And they all said, oh, just kidding. Don't want to die. The resurrection didn't happen. Didn't see it. Don't believe it. No. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished or were nailed to crosses or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired in the gardens of Nero. Nero. Nothing could peel or pry them away from the resurrection. Nothing. Why? Because a lot of them had seen it, and the rest of them were so certain in it. Long before the Gospels were written, before the apostles got out of bed, the Gospel was already exploding all over the world. But what if their hope is wrong? What if Jesus is dead? This is where this passage through verse 19 ends if Jesus is dead your Savior is dust your mediator is dust the one who draws you intimately into the throne of God and makes you worthy to stand before him gone and so you are still doomed The apostles and all of their teachings, the wonderful things of the Gospels and the New Testament, all built upon utter lies. The humble will not be exalted. There is no justice coming. There's no hope. There's no reason to walk away from the worldly mess and to put your hope in heaven. There is nothing coming for you your deceased loved ones that you long to be reunited with, that will never happen. Life is, and then you're gone forever. Your soul is non-existent. You're nothing but impulses and synapses and atoms bouncing around. There's no meaning to anything. And the pagans are right. We are all fools. And Paul closes out this section to verse 19 saying, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. And I want you to hear that because what Paul is saying, if only in this life we have hope in Christ, we're to be pitied above all men. He's saying you should live in such a way that it is costly that if the resurrection is not true people would look at you and go oh, wow you've you've crucified yourself to all the worlds way of doing things you've walked away from worldly pleasures you've walked away from your wealth you've shared everything you have lived such a self-sacrificial life and this is the only turn of the merry-go-round that you get because there's no heaven and you've walked away from it all now sorry about that wow you blew it you'd be pitied more than all men but here's my question to you, if the resurrection's not true, how would you be pitied? How does your life show that you're living for the resurrection and not the moment? Not the worldly sources of satisfaction, but the eternal ones that last. How would people look at you and say, Man, if the resurrection is not true, whew, that's, that's a shame for, for Sam. Does the resurrection make a difference in the way you live? Paul in Romans 6.4 says this. The resurrection's not just for the day that Jesus comes back and we come out of the tombs and he remakes us. Paul says this in Romans chapter six, verse four: We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. We di- we died all our selfish impulses, just as Christ. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That means. Now, he uses an active now verb, walk in the newness of life. The resurrection doesn't just give you power to conquer the grave. The resurrection floods into your life and all the little places where death is grabbing hold of your life. And you feel it and you sense it and you feel that things withering away in your life and your marriage and your job and your hopes and your relationships. And you feel it all withering down to death. The gospel tells you that the power of resurrection can come into your life and breathe it new if you will die to your selfishness. Imagine the new life the Spirit could breathe into your marriage and your life if only you would let go of the petty trinkets you keep a death grip on. And we talked about Paul and how he had walked away from everything. In Philippians 3, he tells us why, and I find this utterly beautiful. It makes me want to have this heart. I wish I could say it as resolutely as he does. He says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. I've been, I've been beaten and chased out of city after city after city. My friends turned on me. My countrymen turned on me. I, I suffer wounds. Look at these scars. I lost my wealth. I lost my reputation. I lost my, my relationships. I lost everything for this. And I count it as rubbish word means sewage that I might gain Christ and be found in him that I may know him and the power of his resurrection do you live in the pursuit and the hope that the power of the resurrection is going to fuel you every day through every crisis through every turmoil God breathe new life into me and my circumstances Lord show me the power of your resurrection I'd give it up, all of it, and consider it as rubbish that so I could gain that. And may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Are we a people who live for the resurrection, not just on that day? but this day. And oh, if we were, what a difference it'd make. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I thank you so much that you are a God of resurrection. That when I look at myself and all my weaknesses and all my frailties and all the messes that I get myself into, Lord, you are a God who comes and breathes the power of your resurrection into my life that things that are dead and withering can be made new and beautiful lord i pray that for all the circumstances in this congregation this morning for all the things that feel like they're withering and decaying that you would help us in those circumstances, to die to the resignation that things are bad, to die to our self interest, to die to all of our pettiness, so that resurrection can happen and new life can come. Lord, we give you thanks. You are such a good dad, uh, a good father. Bless this congregation. In Christ's name, amen.